0: The second point is something strange, because I wasn't planning on it. I was thinking, okay, we're going to talk about something practical in the second part of the sermon. Which is the case, but it's something totally different. Um, And you're going to see what that is at the right time. So let me read the text, or let's read the text together, and then we'll jump right in. So this is Colossians 4, starting with verse 7. If we botch the names, you will... uh, Excuse me, or us. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He's a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and, and that we may encourage your hearts. And with him, Ones- Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Eustace, and these are are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and to church And the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of of the Laodiceans. And see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfil the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be to you. So point number one, I want us to look first to um, the, first, the first person named, this is Titicus. So, who is this guy? First of all, he's sent to say, to give a testimony of what Paul was doing. He has a purpose. He's sent to say everything, right? That's what it says, Right. Then at the, at the end of uh, verse 8, at the end of verse 9, they will tell you of everything that has taken place. He's sent by Paul to tell the church everything. Which means in more detail and more broadly than he could write on a piece of paper, parchment, from prison. Which, is, which should say a lot. So again there's a clear purpose for Tychicus. And he sends him for two reasons. One is he sends him to inform believers. Verse 8 I have sent him for you uh, I him I sent him to you for this very purpose that you may know to inform on the one hand and secondly to encourage that you may know how we are, and that He may encourage your hearts. So just, just briefly look at these two. First, the power of words. To inform and to encourage. These are words for the mind and words for the heart. If you live this place and you only heard knowledge that informs your mind and has nothing to do with your heart, there's a problem in what we are doing, not in the Word of God. Because the word of God is meant to inform and to encourage. And don't forget, this is is a narrative, right? This is a story. It's not just brief pieces of information. It's a story. And the story and the theme of this story, what it talks about, it's how the church of Christ grows in the world. That's what he's informing them of, and that's what he's encouraged them encourages them with how the church grows. The power of God advances in the world by the word of God and by the testimony of His people. And that's very true for us in Aborg. The word of God advances in Allborg. By the power of God and our testimony. We are part of God's work in this city. I hope you believe that and I hope you feel that. Anybody you meet, any mother you meet, any woman you have in your group, any person in the Bible study and any person that comes here. We have a guest tonight. The power of God works in their hearts through the word through the Word and the spirit and our testimony. That's why we have a time of testimony in this church. If you saw it on the screen and you're still thinking, why, do we, why are we doing testimonies? That's why. So you have your role cut out in Orrborg. There's people in Orrborg specifically designed to hear your word, my word. I hope you believe that. And finally, well, not finally, secondly, (laughs) he's sent to encourage them, to encourage their hearts. Now, just think for a second. All the things you know, everything you know, you are the only one, and God, who knows what you know. Now, how much of the things you know points to jesus how much of the things you know encourages your heart every day when you wake up and encourages you or points you to trust him more and love him more think of the world how much information there is on the internet and in the world how much of it does it point to jesus Maybe I should say this as well. Does all the thing, do all the things that you know make you a more loving, graceful person? Do all the things you know, everything that comes out of your mouth, does it make you, does it make me a more encouraging person, right? These, are, these people are sent to encourage people. That's it, right? They're not sent to build churches and, I don't know, whatever, do human, humanitarian work sent to encourage people. What we're doing here every, I almost said every night, every Sunday. And this is totally connected to what I said before. The gospel in its, in its advancement in the world and in Alborg has feet. You know whose feet those are? An answer? Your feet. And it has a mouth Your mouth. I hope you believe that. Second person. Onesimus. Whatever you pronounce that. He's, look at... uh, Verse 9. Our faithful and beloved brother... He's faithful, he's trustworthy, and loved. Not just trustworthy, but loved. It's an amazing statement. We, we tend to pass these by when we read the Bible. Yeah, he's loved, okay, great. But this, this church has no idea who this guy is. Maybe has heard of him once. Once. Let me ask a simple question. Do you love the people around you? Not just two or three, but the people around you. So why is he sent with Titicus? He's sent to help. He's sent maybe to be a second witness to what the testimony is, right? Now, let me point two things out. One is the point of traveling. They're traveling from Rome, where Paul is in prison, to Colossae, which is in Turkey. Now, this is way back in history. If it's hard now with planes and, you know, boats and all that, just imagine how it was then, how long it took, the dangers How amazing it is to have a travel companion with whom at every point, at every challenge on your travels, you can sit down, kneel down and pray and ask for help. And that's related. The second point is related to that. um, To the fact that two were sent, these two. Namely, if you find something to do for the Lord in the name of the gospel. Do it with somebody. Don't do alone. Don't be an individualist. Don't be an island. You know the the Koinonia book that we always read or always read throughout the year at one point? There's that chapter, partnership in the gospel. Two or three. When two or three are gathered, I'm there among them. Don't work alone. Don't do stuff for the, the kingdom alone only. It's lovely, beautiful, and powerful in working together for the advancement of the gospel. And finally, the third person, Aristarchus. Now, about Aristarchus, we're not told much. We're told only one thing. That he's a fellow prisoner of Paul. That's it. That's the only thing that we're told. He goes on then. But then, just to shine a light on what that means... And how heavy that should weigh. Let me read to you a few lines from a study done on. This is, a, this is from a historical study done on Roman prisons from back then. It goes like this. Roman imprisonment was preceded by being stripped naked, flogged, humiliated in pain and in bloody ordeals. The bleeding wounds went untreated. Prisoners set in painful leg or wrist chains. They were mutilated, bloodstained uh, blood clothing was not replaced even in the cold winter. In his final, final imprisonment, Paul asked for a cloak, presumably because it was cold. Most cells were dark, especially in the inner cells of a prison, like the one Paul and Silas were inhabiting in Philippi. Unbearable cold, lack of water, cramped quarters, sickening stench from few of or non-existing toilets made sleeping difficulty difficult and waking hours absolutely miserable. Male and female prisoners were sometimes incarcerated together, which led to sexual immorality and abuse in the cell. Prison food, when available, was poor. Most prisoners had to provide their own food from outside sources. When Paul was in prison in Caesarea, Felix, the, proc- the proc- uh, procurator, procurator whatever, gave orders to the centurion that none of his friends should be prevented from attending his needs. Because of his miserable conditions, many prison- prisoners begged for a speedy death. Others, others simply committed suicide. So when Paul says Aristarchus was a fellow prisoner. It's not, it's not a reduction of, of who he was, what he did and saw and witnessed and went through or suffered. It's more than just traveling to, to Turkey. So. To be Paul's prisoner meant to accept all that, feel all that, and see all that. It meant praying with those who were in prison with you in the cell. Just imagine. Maybe 10, 15, 20 people, we don't know. Maybe just five, we don't know. All of these are possible. Just imagine somebody comes to you, or maybe they're crying out from the other part of the room. Can you pray for me? Or probably it meant also mockery. Not all people who were in prison were Christians. It meant caring physically or spiritually for the people next to you. Maybe there were people constantly asking, just imagine how difficult it must be for somebody to constantly nag you, do something, help me, I don't know, pray for me, help my, I don't know, tend my wounds. And through all that, Paul says, this Aristarchus guy, almost anonymous, we don't really know anything about him other than this, was a comfort for him. A nobody, an anonymous person was a comfort for the biggest evangelist in history in prison. Just imagine how big of a deal that is to play that role, to meet Aristarchus in heaven and hear the stories Now, the question is, how does one become a comfort to somebody in prison? That's what we all want to know. What drives you when everything around you gives way? When nothing and no one can help you, what is your rock? What is your stay? Now, the way Paul dealt with this, and I'm sure Aristarchus is not, is not foreign to this, as they were imprisoned to together, the way he dealt with it was to fall back on the sovereignty of God. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. And here's the big, but (laughs) that was namely the reason for that was the intention for that was but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will, be, that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. The intention of the suffering, the purpose of the suffering, the reason why God let and designed suffering in his life was for him not to trust himself, but to trust on Christ. So how does one become a comfort in prison? Or how does one live a Christian life? There's no other way to live the Christian life but to understand everything from the point of view of of God's sovereignty. By speaking about sovereignty and acting according to the reality of it, you will become a comfort because it, namely the sovereignty of God, is a comfort for you. do you think aristarchus was a comfort for paul well paul heard him pray paul saw him act in prison rest assured i don't think i cannot imagine paul and aristarchus being in a prison cell with all those people having all that happen around them and not do or say anything Question: Does everyone around me, does everyone around you, know, hear, or see you and me trusting in the sovereignty of God over all things? Not ninety-nine, not ninety-five, not ninety-nine point nine, but all things. Now, as I said, I was, as I was preparing the sermon, I didn't think I'm going to end up talking about this, but here we are. You cannot radically serve God and love people if God's sovereignty is not your highest comfort. That's the simple point. And now, of course, part two is to answer the question, why is the sovereignty of God a comfort? Many people struggle with this. Many people find it offensive. Many people even say that's not in the Bible. You, you cannot trust in a God who allows abortion. You cannot allow a, a God who allows tsunamis, who kill thousands of people. You cannot trust a God who allows things to come in my life that would drive my heart to believe that there's no God in control of everything. Why does God allow that? Well, we're we'll trying to answer that. But before we do that, one crucial point. You cannot, please listen, you cannot be a comfort to those who are in great need of comfort if you are not comforted in your own life and struggles by the sovereign rule of a sovereign God. You cannot, we're talking prison here, you cannot be a comfort to somebody in prison and not somebody, a Christian in prison and not have your heart and mind and life driz- driven by the sovereignty of God. Because otherwise, you fail. Why did He put me in here? Why am I here? I should be outside serving Him. Just think about it. Is God, does God have no idea about economics? Isn't it more economical to, for Paul to walk throughout the whole world and, and preach and teach and shout in the markets about Christ? He's in prison, in chains, sending two people, two people, not 200, two people with a letter to maybe a church of what, 10, 20, 50? But the purpose is something else. He had us in mind. Now, to be sovereign means to have supreme power and authority over everything. To be in total control. Kings are sovereign, right? A king is a sovereign ruler. And God is a supreme sovereign. Because he created and sustains everything. You cannot create everything and sustain everything as it exists. And not be sovereign over it. You would not be a just and loving God. It's just, it would just be contradictory. He rules over the cosmos and everything that lives in it. When you go out of your house, when Christian and Kyleen were traveling there and back to the U.S. and back, he knew that. He knew all the details. He knew about the plane. He knew about the cabin in the woods. He knew about everything. <laughs> He knew where he was taking them and he knew where he was bringing them back from. The Lord has established his throne in the throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. All. Let me point out three ways in which God is sovereign. God is sovereign over his creation, his creation. Isaiah uh, 45, 7. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. It's there, written, well, white on black. (laughs) He said it. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them, not one of the birds that you see in town, not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. God is sovereign over the affairs of mankind, over everything and everybody. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. If he does that for the king, do you think he doesn't he's not doing that for you? Proverbs 16:9 The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. And finally, God is sovereign over our salvation, sanctification, and glorification. First Peter 5:10 After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. He does it. Not us, not our church, not our family, not my father and and mother. He does it. And finally, Romans 8.30. Those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. He's, let's put it like that, he's in charge of the entire process. Not one, two, or just the final step. Now, let me come back to my question Why is God's sovereignty a comfort? And how can we be a comfort to others because of it or with it? Three practical points and I'm done. Number one. I don't have a slide for it. It's just the question. The doctrine of God's sovereignty brings us great comfort in trials and suffering. When we are knocked off our feet... By an unexpected, an unexpected trial, by a death in the family, by something that happens and I do not like it. We can turn to these truths to remind ourselves that nothing happens outside of God's sovereign control. When life feels as though everything is uncertain and in chaos, We can tell ourselves with certainty. That's You see, this is the Christian way. Everything you tell yourself from this book is real. You know for certainty that it's going to happen. It's not just hearsay or wishful thinking. There's no Christian wishful thinking. It's the sovereignty of God. So you can tell yourself with certainty, God is not surprised. It is a reminder that though the trial we are facing is a complete surprise to us, it isn't a surprise to him. He's never asleep or caught off guard. You can't sleep. He he doesn't. He never does. He's never at a loss, wondering, what shall I do? Point number two. The truth of God's sovereignty calms our hearts because we know that there are no accidents or random circumstances. God ordains and orchestrates all things. And because God is our good and loving and faithful father, as we just sang in the last song, we can rest in his holy purposes for us. That in that that's, that's at the heart of the problem. He has a purpose for us. In 2 Corinthians what was the purpose for them not to trust in themselves but in him. All right? Even when we don't understand the things that happen to us, we can trust that God's plan is always good. Even if we don't understand how he's going to get there. And you know what? Sometimes in order for him to accomplish his purpose. He will put us in prison. And you can, you can take that prison and, and, and say poverty. Or depression. Or I'm struggling with my family. Or... What's your prison? And finally, number three, the doctrine of God's complete sovereignty is a comfort for us when we worry about difficult choices with regards to the future. When we stand, have you ever stood at crossroads thinking which one? we can so much get caught up in complex decision-making that it's it becomes a fog. And it's not a fog for the eyes, it's a, it becomes a fog for the heart. And it becomes a fog for the heart in the sense that we do not see God anymore. So we can get up, get caught up in complex decision-making or deciding which job, which city, which... Whatever, which A or B to choose, which school, which country? We fear making the wrong, taking the wrong, or making the wrong choice because it will mark us for the future, or our next years. The truth, I- the truth is, we cannot interfere with God's plans for us because God is sovereign, we don't need to second guess everything we're doing. God's sovereign plan for us will take place just as he designed it. So the only thing we have to do is just trust him. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, I pray that you would provide us your spirit in, in such a way that we will with much certainty every day be able to lay our hearts bare and our, hand over our lives. Just sit in, the, in the, the, not the, get out of the driver's seat and let you drive our lives, Lord. Help us do that. Help us trust the fact that you are always in control. Help us trust that you are never surprised, you're never caught off guard. And more than that, Lord, help us to not just find comfort in your sovereignty, but help us comfort others with that truth. Because that's what Paul and Aristarchus and all the other guys did. Help us follow suit in their footsteps and imitate them. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.